From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Okay, imagine me doing a thick Bronx Jewish accent here. I'd try it, but it would not be pretty. Artists don't talk about art. Artists talk about work. If I have anything to say to young writers, it's stop thinking of writing as art. Think of it as work. That's a quote from Patty Chayefsky, arguably the greatest TV and screenwriter of all time. I love that sentiment. It always rubs me the wrong way when people talk about TV and screenwriters as artists, especially themselves. There's undoubtedly an art to it, but in practice, it's so much more workmanlike. You know, William Goldman talks about screenwriting as being more akin to architecture than anything else. And to me, that's what Chayefsky is saying in this quote. His writing life isn't waiting for inspiration to strike. It's dragging himself to his Upper West Side office every day, chaining himself to his desk and working. Just so happens the work he put out is transcendent. Chayefsky is the only person ever to have won three solo Academy Awards for Best Screenplay. More than anyone else, he's responsible for the first golden age of television, without which we might not have our current golden age. Chayefsky brought realism and naturalism to TV. He wasn't writing melodramas or fairy tales or updating classic literature. In the beginning of his career, he wrote personal stories about people like him. Marty, which he wrote for TV and later adapted for film where it won Best Picture, is about an intensely lonely, overweight Bronx butcher who lives with his mother. Almost no one was writing that kind of brutally honest personal story in Hollywood then. Look at the films that won Best Picture after Marty. They were Around the World in 80 Days, Bridge on the River Kwai, Ben-Hur, all sweeping epics. Chayefsky stood alone with his small, personal, revealing stories of anguish and hope. Most of these early TV scripts are now forgotten, but when they aired, they persuaded critics that TV could be the place for serious drama. Now, in his later career, Chayefsky had unprecedented power for a writer in Hollywood, and he wrote the scripts for some of the smartest, most ambitious movies of all time, often scathingly satirical about the dehumanization that he saw in society. These include The Hospital with George C. Scott, and what's got to be his crowning achievement, maybe the greatest screenplay of the century, Network, starring William Holden and Faye Dunaway, which tells the story of the depraved, soulless execs running a television network. When Aaron Sorkin won the Oscar for writing The Social Network, he got on stage and said, I can't tell you what it feels like to accept the same award that Petty Chayefsky received 35 years ago. We're doing something a little unusual on the pod today. Being long dead, I can't get Chayefsky on the podcast. But... I was able to get the next best thing. Dave Itzkoff is a culture reporter for the New York Times. If you see his byline, trust me, you always want to read the article because it's going to be smart and funny and tackle whatever subject he's reporting on from a very interesting angle. Dave also wrote an extraordinary book about Patty Chayefsky and the making of Network. It's such a great read, incredibly well-researched, and goes deep into what drove Chayefsky. Aaron Sorkin again praised it, saying, Dave Itzkoff has written a sensational and definitive book about how the 20th century's most important screenwriter came to write the 20th century's most explosive movie. I believe this is the first thing written about Patty Chayefsky that Patty Chayefsky would have liked. 
high praise from Sorkin. So here's Dave Itzkoff. We are going to go deep into the world and the writing of Patty Chayefsky. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Hey, Dave. Hey, how are Um, you? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm really glad you're here. I'm so excited to talk about Chayefsky a little bit. Uh, Yeah, I always like talking about him. Would Chayefsky be as legendary today if it wasn't for Network? Like, let's take away Network. Let's say he never wrote that, okay? He'd still have two best screenplay Oscars, right? He'd still have written the Americanization of Emily. He'd still have all of his plays, all of his TV movies. But no one talks about any of his movies today besides Network, right? I mean, I think Marty still gets brought up because that is a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a distillation of, you know, American culture and uh, urban New York culture at a certain time. But I think you're right that ev- almost everything in between uh, gets a little bit glossed over. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, 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 the flip side of that is, I, I mean, I think network, uh, you know, I mean, what can you say? It just towers over all, almost all the other things so mightily and is is just so unique and and making such a strong statement in a way that even all the other films aren't that uh i mean there there is a reason why that is so sort of i think vividly entrenched in uh, you know the cultural consciousness yeah and i appreciate you saying uh that that people still know marty but i would bet almost anything that not a single person on this campus i guarantee no one in my class has ever heard of Marty. They they don't know. They've never heard. They don't. They've never seen a few good men. I mean, these are people that were well. born in the mid nineties. <laughs> they have no idea what Marty is. That's uh, that's stunning. But I, you know, it's it's an you know, I, I'll go down this rabbit hole a little bit. I, mean, I just think it has more to do with people's uh, consumption habits these days. That you know, I'm going to sound like an old man, but for as much choice as we have now and what's available to us, I think people have more opportunity than ever just to kind of confine themselves to the things that they already know and the things that are familiar, the movies from their own lifetime. And yeah. so I don't know how if if you know. I, I mean, I'm the kind of kid who grew up. I, I was stuck with you know whatever was on you know the three broadcast networks plus maybe uh, you know HBO or you know the rainy day movie on WPIX. So if you want to watch TV, you got to just watch what they're showing yeah, you, right. and that maybe maybe that helped broaden my horizons a little bit. Totally. And you know, with Marty, I mean, I hate talking about it like a museum piece because um, you know when you watch it, it really is just a fantastic love story and you know a very a very personal. Uh, vision uh, from the writer. Uh, but, you know, do you agree that that Marty and the other uh, TV movies that he was writing uh, in sort of what's we now consider the first golden age of, of TV writing, that it was a sort of a, a landmark, that it was a giant change, that he was the first one to really tell personal stories in a naturalistic kind of way, changing the I medium? I mean, he would... He was among a group of people who, yes, I think very much, uh, uh, you know, helped 
uh, just establish TV as uh, a viable, uh, you know, a, a basically an, an equal of what was happening in movies at the time, what was happening in the legitimate theater, which, you know, by and large audiences did not, unless you lived in New York, you didn't really have access uh, to that. So, yeah, I mean, he, he was he was part of a, of a group of writers from, uh, from that period. I mean, people who were contributing to what were essentially the anthology shows like the uh, he wrote you know he wrote for the what was called either the, you know it, it depending on who the sponsor was that week it was the Goodyear Philco Playhouse obviously Playhouse 90 was uh, you know hugely important uh, and but this you know it's it's almost hard to conceive of now but TV was so novel that there weren't established uh, formats yet there wasn't this idea that like oh people want to watch uh, cop shows or right. doctor shows or uh, you know science fiction shows anything they were just all they could you know some some of what they would broadcast were you know adaptations of uh, things that had already been produced on the stage and then they started reaching out to uh, established dramatists and Chavsky is really more of an aspiring dramatist at this point they just needed to fill the airtime hmm. and he was somebody who could uh, do it not only do it well but do it prolifically and he could just kind of churn out scripts not that he didn't try or didn't have ideas or thoughts but you had to also just keep up with the pace and the demand of it and uh, it, you know it it uh, it burned his candle at both ends, but he did it. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, looking back in hindsight, of course, it, it appears like this is a guy who said, you know, screw the rules. I'm going to write something incredibly personal and naturalistic, and I'm going to change what this medium is. But in fact, there were probably a bunch of his TV movies back then that were very run of the mill. I mean, they were probably elevated because he was the one writing them. But, you know, for every Marty, I'm sure there were ones that, you know, fit into the, the TV of the time. Well, I think that there – I mean there was – there were recurring themes and a kind of principal idea that he went back to over and over again, which was just the you know, ideas of you know, alienation, isolation, uh, especially you know, working class people right. who have you know, kind of vivid inner lives. Marty was just the one that I think he got it – he got it the best or mm-hmm. you know, just it fully realized all those ideas and, and, and delivered in – uh, you know the sort of the, the the quintessential package. I don't even think it was the favorite of the scripts that he wrote in that period, and and they certainly the success of it I think shocked him to some degree. Uh, but I think he also grasped the idea that he wasn't. Uh, you know, he. I mean, what he was trying to, you know, that was a romantic story about a, you know, a butcher finding his sort of first, uh, you know, adult girlfriend, and you know, breaking free of the control of his mother and his uh, a friend of his who's kind of, you know, down on his luck, and uh, just the idea that, you know. It, Love isn't isn't something that's only restricted to uh, movie stars or depicted in you know uh, movie romances. That it, it obviously it happens for people uh, all the time in all walks of life, and to show it for this kind of seemingly you know average person was something that a lot of people uh, connected to. And it still feels revolutionary when you watch it today and see you know Ernest Borgnine and um, I forget who played the female lead. Uh, in the movie version, but it still feels really weird to not see it being Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. I mean, it's it's fantastic, but you still are a little bit shocked by it when you first see it. 
Yeah, I mean, if people have the ability, I would even more strongly. I mean, God, God bless Ernest Borgnine, but I think if you can go back and find the TV version with with Rod Steiger, it's even a little bit more raw. It, you know, the Borgnine version, in a funny way, is kind of like the uh, the polished over version, the the one that was made a little bit more palatable for mass audiences. You know, I mean, his performance is is brilliant, and you know, the the script is is largely intact, uh, but the Steiger one is. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the indie rock version versus the uh, arena rock version. I oh guess my. that's the best uh, analogy I could make. You're blowing my mind. I've never seen the Stagger version. Oh, is you got to find it. Is it, it on YouTube a, or something? I, uh, I know that uh, I think Criterion Collection has a DVD set uh, called The Golden Age of Television, and it's definitely on that. And uh, it, it, you know, it, it shows on PBS sometimes. It might be on on YouTube in in uh, you know uh, legal or or otherwise uh, wow. form. Fantastic! But totally worth your time. Oh yeah. my God! Yeah, I love the movie so much, and um, yeah. you know that version sounds amazing. So for people who don't know what the hell we're talking about, I want to play a clip from Marty. <laughs> uh, so this is this is from the movie version, the Borgnine version. And this is from early on in the movie. Um, Marty is this lonely, uh, unattractive butcher who lives at home with his mother. And uh, they're sitting down to dinner as the scene begins. So let's play the clip and then um, we can talk about it. So what are you going to do tonight, Marty? I don't know, Ma. I'm all knocked out. I may just hang around the house. Why don't you go to the Stardust Ballroom? What? I say, why don't you go to the Stardust Ballroom? It's loaded with tomatoes. It's loaded with what? Tomatoes. <laughs> Who told you about the Stardust Ballroom, huh? Tommy. He says it's a very nice place. Oh, Thomas. My, it's just a big dance hall. That's all it is. I've been there a hundred times. <laughs> loaded with tomatoes. Why, you're funny, Mark. Marty, I don't want you to hang around the house tonight. I want you to go take a shave and go dance. Ma, when are you going to give up? you got a bachelor on your hands. I ain't never going to get married. Uh, you're going to get married. Ma, sooner or later, there comes a point in a man's life when he's got to face some facts. And one fact i got to face is that whatever it is that women like, I ain't got it. I chased after enough girls in my life. I, I went to enough dances. I got hurt enough. I don't want to get hurt no more. I just called up a girl this afternoon. I got a real brush off, boy. I figured I was past the point of being hurt, but that hurt. Some stupid woman who I didn't even want to call up. She gave me the brush. No, Ma, I don't want to go to Stardust Ballroom because all that ever happened to me there was girls made me feel like I was a, a bug. I got feelings, you know. I had enough pain. No thanks, Ma. Marty. No. I'm going to stay home tonight and watch the hit parade. Are you going to die without a son? So I'll die without a son. Oh, Marty, put on the blue suit, huh? Blue suit, gray suit. I'm just a fat little man, a fat, ugly man. You're not ugly. I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. Marty. Ma, leave me alone. Ma, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I'm miserable enough as it is. All right, so I'll go to the Stardust Ball. I'll put on a blue suit and I'll go. And you know what I'm going to get for my trouble? Heartache. A big night of heartache. Oh, man. I love uh, that so much. So raw, yeah. so vulnerable. Um, yeah. Having to explain that to his mom. Man. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, what's, what's I think, uh, amazing, particularly about the, the Borgnine performance, uh, you know, if you, you know, where that scene starts out, it, you know, it begins in a very comedic place and kind of, uh, you know, laughing at his mom for trying to kind of adopt 
this, uh, you know, contemporary slang that she doesn't completely right. understand. And But then it ends in a very, uh, you know, uh, emotional, personal place for the Marty character, how, you know, how ultimately deep down he, you know, the, the, the self-loathing and, and, you know, he, he truly believes that he's ugly and has nothing to offer and his uh, sort of, uh, you know, woefulness really not wanting to get hurt again i mean you know for it and it goes there just in a, in a matter of sentences and just you know over the span of a, a minute or two it does chayefsky was just um a genius at, at building tension in a scene just the from where it starts to where it ends just being completely different but not feeling like it was a jump cut just very sort of naturally getting there you know for me the moment when he says to his mom especially borgnine's line reading but when he says so i'll die without a son i mean that's such an intense sort of existential thing to admit to both himself and to his mom, but he says it very calmly, and then it's the next beat when he finally explodes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's it's interesting you choose the word explodes because that is kind of a recurring characteristic of uh, Chayefsky's protagonists that they are these whatever whatever walk of life they're in, they tend to be these very wound up people, and they always get a moment in you know, usually in their movie where they kind of blow up, where the tension has built to such a point that they have to let it all out and mm. it usually culminates in some kind of a, a big uh, often loud speech that they're, you know, it's it's really, you know, if you look at it on a page, just a long uninterrupted block of text from one person, which is very, you know, especially in TV or in movies, unusual because much more give and take uh, and that was, you know, really kind of a uh, a trademark of his writing and something that clearly carries through uh, to network where, you know, you have all these scenes, you have a lot of repartee, but there are major, major, you know, speeches at these kinds of, you know, intervals. And that's such an unusual component uh, of, of movie screenwriting to give any one character the platform for that long. Yeah, big time. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about network in a second. But, you know, for me, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts. Those speeches, I think, are incredible. But in network, I mean, but they leave me a little bit cold. Here, when it's sort of more personal, when it's a guy talking to his mom about something that he's so vulnerable about, something that's so sort of internal, I, I get emotional. I was just getting very emotional just listening <laughs> to that clip. Um, but I'll <laughs> thank give you a you. hug. I'll, I'll give you a hug. Yeah. Um, now, it's, it's dangerous to take a character as a stand-in for a writer ever. Um, but in this case, it does, I don't know, it, it's, it's hard not to feel like Chayefsky is opening, him, uh, opening up about himself a little bit. I mean, the guy, the guy looked a little bit like Ernest Borgnine and like Rod Stoker. <laughs> Do you think that there's a, is that fair to say? Oh, sure. No, I mean, that's, I think that, and that's a part of what made him, I mean, the success of Marty made him a celebrity in part because there certainly was the assumption on the part of the audience that he was telling a personal story and drawing on his own experiences. And, and you know, to a certain extent, he denied that. I mean, it's true, you know, he did grow up in the Bronx and he certainly was, uh, I mean, he came from a Jewish family, obviously not an, an Italian one, but I mean, he, he really was steeped in the kind of uh, you know culture and lifestyle that he was writing about uh, and and also as you say I mean he was uh, a short stocky guy uh, you know didn't grow a beard until uh, a little later in in life uh, I think partly because you know all the early like uh, you know newspaper and magazine profiles that got written about him in the success in, in the flush of Marty's success they always made reference to his kind of physical unattractiveness and it's hard not to 
to imagine that that uh, got to him. I don't think he saw himself in that way, but then to see yourself through that lens and people kind of, uh, even in an affectionate way, mocking you for being this kind of, you know, uh, blocky, pudgy guy. Right. That's, that, you know, that, that I'm sure that that, that it takes a toll on your psyche. Yeah, completely. But just, man, it makes me even just respect him more for being able to write that kind of character, knowing that people are going to draw that line. Um, yeah, I don't. It's interesting. I don't know how much he, you know, knew or thought of at the time, but he became, uh, I think, extremely aware. Certainly in the face of Marty's success, and then you know, adapting that into a film and winning the Oscar for it, about uh, you know how how uh, a wider audience processes your work, how uh, you know critics in, in particular kind of translate it to an audience and, and you know, bracing yourself for what a critic is going to say, trying to write around anticipated uh, criticism. Right. Uh, you, you know, try, trying even as, as the creator who worked to get out ahead of critical response and telling people this is what it's actually about and don't let others kind of interpret it for you. I mean, that was a battle right. he fought uh, his whole career. Uh, if, if he only knew jerks like us would be talking about it 50 years later, <laughs> comparing him to For his sure. characters. No, he would despise us. No <laughs> he <problem>. really would. <laughs> um, so he's, you know, he's Aaron Sorkin's hero. He's Aaron Sorkin's favorite writer. Do you see Chayefsky's influence on writers like Sorkin, on, on our major writers working today? Well, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, of course, Sorkin, you know, and, and very self-consciously, you know, has, has, you know, patterned himself on Shaevsky, tried to emulate him in different ways. What's funny, I think, is that, you know, I think there's a, for the most part, a kind of essential optimism to Sorkin's writing that mm -hmm. isn't in Shaevsky. Right. I mean, you know, movies like The American President or certainly The West Wing TV series, it was about, uh, you know, an idealized version of what you, you know, what he hoped people in high places and powerful places would do with their... Right opportunities and Chayefsky is all you know cynicism and uh, kind of uh, a little bit of bile of like assuming that you know the people who rise to those ranks uh, are the worst people and will do the worst in those situations but certainly the uh, you know the assumed eloquence of every character and the, the speechifying and the repartee right. that's all uh, out of Chayefsky uh, you know in, at, at the present moment you know I, th I think his you know I, I think his sort of the, the disciples uh, uh, you know, are few and further between. You know, I don't know if he's as much of a. a, a t I mean, he's respected, but I don't know if he's as much of a, a personal touchstone for people. Uh, you know, I mean, people like maybe uh, you know Danny Strong or um, oh uh, the the House of Cards uh, creator, what's uh, Bo Williman? Uh, you know, those are people who I can see kind of in in a in a Chayefsky, uh, mode, but yep. yeah, I, you know, certainly right now, I mean, it, you know, everything is, uh, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, uh, the fantastical and and the, you know, I think larger than life situations, uh, you know, there's not there's not as much of the sort of the kitchen sink realism that Chayefsky was credited for that seems to have, uh, you know, fallen out of favor for the moment. But you know, it, it, these things are cyclical, and that that style always comes back at some point. Totally. Um, you know, I was thinking a little bit about Tony Gilroy with some of his more satirical oh, stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good comparison. And then I was also thinking just in terms of the vulnerability we were talking about before with Marty, you know, Charlie Kaufman, like the the adaptation character, Nicolas Cage in adaptation, that kind of you know, that's interesting. slob of a writer feel, you know, as a stand-in for the 
the um, the screenwriter, you know, um, there's it feels like there's a kinship there. But obviously, you know, as you're saying, I think that uh, Chayefsky's real disciples are working in TV today because that's the only place that you can actually write stories with ideas. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, certainly, I mean, if right, I mean, if and if you want to be critical of. Uh, institutions. Uh, that's the only place you can do it. I don't think uh, right. you know. Certainly, the the uh, you know the Hollywood studio system. It is just not does not have the appetite or the stomach for that right, right. now. Uh, yeah, that's and part of what's extraordinary about network is you know the idea of him using the money of two studios to you know basically take shots at every you know at all of mass media i mean that could it's it's impossible to fathom that happening today it is yeah it completely is you know maybe david simon a little bit the way he pokes fun at institutions and or not more than pokes fun but really um criticizes them in his yeah and i think i think also that that i mean and and simon of course you know is a former journalist but that that journalistic impulse of yeah i mean chayefsky particularly when you know writing the hospital writing network yeah i mean he you know he wasn't just trying to do things off the top of his head he wanted to really first spend time in these in these places at the institutions that he's writing about really learn firsthand how they work so that you know just just to you know create that verisimilitude is that right so he spent time at a network for network oh he went to actually i mean the newsrooms of all the major networks of that day of you know nbc abc and cbs and and also went to see uh you know local uh tv news broadcasts like in uh atlanta and also uh you know focused on uh, a, a local news network in in or news broadcast in san francisco because in that era they were much more uh tabloidy and and you know certainly not perceived as being uh as quote unquote serious as the network news broadcasts and so that's part of what he was tapping into or what you know it, it, you know drove his inspiration hmm. and uh, the fact that he did get access to you know people like uh Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor that's what scandalized uh, the networks when the film came out because they felt like you know they had basically let Chayefsky through their front door right. to do all this research and then they felt like they turn around he turned around and just you know bit the hand that that fed him they right. thought he was going to do something uh, certainly not as as uh, you know as as scathing as as what turned it, what it turned out to be. You know, it's interesting. I, him going and, and doing all of that firsthand research, I, I didn't really know about. I bet writers do that so much. I mean, I, I know they do that so much less today. I imagine yeah. part of that is, of course, because there's so much uh, research available online that you don't need to. But there's something about being in the place, especially seeing what it looks like. Not, you know, some of my favorite writers talk about, you know, not being able to write a scene until they can literally, you know, perfectly imagine that the the room that the scene takes place in. That kind of stuff yeah. is so incredibly important, which I'm sure he got from, you know, going to these various newsrooms. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know, even though he didn't consider himself a journalist, I mean, I think he sort of felt uh, kind of duty duty bound that if he's going to write about these places, he has to know for himself and feel satisfied that he truly understood how they worked. And he he wasn't interested, I, you know, not not to discredit other writers, but I think to some extent people write to what an audience's existing expectation is to you know write the. 
you know, write the hospital or the police, you know, uh, precinct that you already imagine it to be. And his goal was, no, let me show you as best I can as it really looks. And, you know, if you if you listen to the, the dialogue in the movie and you just watch, uh, you know, even just the, the physical structures. I mean, there's just so much. There's a lot of just lingo that he throws in mm-hmm. and not always really knowing what it means. But these were, you know, they were this was language that he heard in meetings that he attended or, you know, physical. Uh, you know, floor plan layouts that he saw, the way, you know, the desks that people sat at and the order that they sat in and the kinds of offices that executives had. I mean, it was important for him that it just look exactly the way it would have in that time. It just, even, even if an audience member never got to sort of compare them side by side, he had to feel satisfied in his own mind that that's, you know, what it looked like and sounded like on screen. Completely. Yeah. So speaking of physical spaces, I'm going to confess something really creepy I did after reading your book. Um, you printed okay. Chayefsky's office address, 857th mm. Avenue, Suite 1106. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to see what it looked like where, you know, Chayefsky just went to work and wrote all my favorite things every day. So, yeah. you, I mean, I, I would imagine you did this too. I'm curious to hear, but I yeah. went, yeah, I went there and I, you know, I gave the guard an excuse. I said I had to drop something <laughs> off on the 11th floor and I took the elevator up. Uh, I put a fake name on the sign-in sheet and I went into the studio, wow. which is now into his office. I mean, his suite, which is now, um, I think it was like, a, you know, it was, it was a bunch of office workers, some kind of accounting firm. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. But my experience, yeah, it's I wanted, very... yeah. So did you do this oh. too? You went up there? I didn't, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't go quite as far as you did, but I, I mean, I, of course, I, you know, I, I would go by that building all the time because it's, it's, very, you know, it's very close to uh, Carnegie Hall, and right. that's where the, of course, where the Carnegie Deli yeah. used to be, and there's a lot of kind of just, uh, you know, junky uh, electronic stores in that in right. that vicinity. And in a weird way, then that neighborhood has not changed too much in the time since, uh, you know, Chayefsky was was working there. You right. know, forty some odd. Uh, that's years what was ago. exciting about it. But I went up onto yeah. into the suite. And, you know, the carpeting clearly was there since the 70s. And Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it felt so depressing to me. Like, this is a, one of those buildings with, you know, wall-to-wall carpeting and low ceilings and narrow hallways. And I just got the sense of this poor schlemiel going up there every day and <laughs> tying himself down to the desk and just trying to write what he can and just, like, hitting his head against a wall. And it seemed like a fucking tough writer's life to me. Yeah, well, it really impresses upon you, I think, how workmanlike he was in his approach, or at least the way he thought about what he did. That it was, you know, we think about it, I think, fairly as these, you know, these great pieces of artistry. But you know, he was somebody who was just like, you know, to him it was like, you know, time to make the donuts. Right. You know, he just had to like get up at the same hour, just put in the time. Uh, sit at the typewriter, pound out some words. Maybe they're good, maybe they're bad. You you know you revise, you rehash, you get a little closer to the thing each with each revision. Uh, but not you know it's it's not this sort of glamorous idea of you, you know a, an artist retreating into his studio and 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 you know making a masterpiece. It was much more like. Uh, you know, just going into the factory and you know doing the you know doing the repetitive task over and over again, and then clocking out at five p.m. Totally, yeah. Um, now, uh, when you when you wrote your book, did you have any models? Um, are there, you know, I know of uh, Sam Wasson has a great book that about was, the making breakfast at Tiffany's. Was that you read very, that? 
Yes, that I mean that was absolutely uh, that was one of the touchstones. Uh, you know, Julie Salomon's book, uh, The Devil's Candy. I mean, she of course had you know physical day to day access to the production of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, but that was you know a huge. I haven't uh, read that one. Is that great? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's 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 uh, and and to a certain extent, I mean, I, I don't want to even put myself in in the same you know ballpark or, or universe. But I mean, if you read, you know, uh, Pauline Kael's, uh, you know, New Yorker uh, sure. feature when she spent time with uh, Sidney Lumet when he was making, uh, uh, oh, forgive me. Uh, I actually don't know the, what Pauline Kael wrote about uh, Lumet. Oh, uh, it, 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 I, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking no, on the name of uh, the the Lumet film that that that. Uh, that she was present for, but that's it's a it's a terrific feature. I mean, you know, those are those are stories where you you know, or books where you need you know, all, all those writers had you know, well, obviously not the Sam Wasson book, but they you know, he he convinces you that he was there uh, each yes. and every day, yeah, uh, and with those people and had you know, unfettered access to you know, all all its participants. Uh, so that that was. Uh, you know what? What I was hoping to, you know, that, that you know, that's, that's what I was trying to model myself right. on. And you know what Sam did, and and um, you know, I know Sam a little bit. We're actually working on a project together. But you know what oh, Sam terrific. did, yeah, with with Breakfast at, at Tiffany's with his book is, you know, he had a real, um, he had sort of a thesis statement, which is that Breakfast at Tiffany's, because it was, um, you know, America's sweetheart Audrey Hepburn playing Holly Golightly, a girl who was, you know, single and not ashamed to be single, um, that that changed what it meant to be single in society. Society. And similarly, it feels like you, you know, you didn't just write like a, you know, a, a tell-all behind the scenes of network. You actually, <laughs> you know, you're making, you're talking about Chavsky and what it meant, you know, that it was his vision. Um, what's the, what's the uh, subtitle of your book? Yeah. Oh, if I can. <laughs> it's <laughs> wow. called, no, no, it, it's called uh, The Making of Network and the... Uh, this is embarrassing. I hope you're embarrassed. <laughs> I hope you're really embarrassed really, right now. I should. I should be. I've, I've only just now remembered that the name of the Sidney Lumet movie was called The Group. Uh, that was the film that <laughs> right. Uh, I I'm embarrassed. I haven't read that either. Yeah. Actually. Oh no. That you should definitely check that out. But my book was, it, it was the undertitle was I'll called The Making of Network. No, The Making of Network and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it was even that clever of a thesis but the, you know it's inevitable that it, it as you say it is for all the people that worked on network and all all the you know uh vivid performances and and work that went into it it is ultimately Chayefsky's movie it it's yeah. it, it all emanates from uh, you know his philosophy, the way that he looked at the world, the way that he saw the country at that time, where he thought we were going, uh, how much he clearly got right, and so you have to understand. You have to understand him to understand where network came from, and then also, and once you see not only how he created network, but the uh, aftermath of its release and sadly the very curtailed life that he led after it and then i mean i think that you fully appreciate you know uh, the uh, just the extraordinary uh, prophetic vision that he did have and almost in in this deeply ironic way that he did not live to see the accuracy of what he predicted right. come to pass right right um how did he have so much power that it was network by patty chayefsky you would never see that today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just the fact that he, you know he basically demanded it, and and he, 
you know, had no qualms about walking away from any kind of deal where he didn't get to exercise that level of control and didn't get that kind of credit. I mean, a, a studio might say, look, we will pay you the richest deal we can imagine and you will make more money on this than you'll ever need in your life. But if he didn't get the uh, artistic control that he expected, that to him was you know, the most valuable commodity of all. And he'd certainly, uh, to, you know, to his mind, had enough experiences up to that point in his career where he didn't get that level of authority and felt frustrated by the outcome that you know, he, he had no, again, no uh, hesitation to you know, just basically walk away from any deal that didn't offer it to him. And right. because you know, he was always writing on spec. He didn't have, right. you know, like a three picture deal with any studio and didn't owe anybody a future screenplay. So, uh, you know, he could uh, certainly by the time of network, he had the two Oscars already and, 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 and had a very, uh, even though he, you know, he hadn't had anything produced since uh, the hospital and, and, and had, you know, a couple of things fall apart at the 11th hour that were very frustrating for him, but he still wielded that kind of uh, reputation and an authority that, you know, that's what he demanded and that's what he could, uh, you know, rely upon receiving. Right. God, that's amazing. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, that he was doing all this on spec, that, you know, that every project I have, you know, I, I try to set up with the producer as quickly as possible so it's not just me, you know, alone in a room writing into, you know, in sort of feeling like I'm in the wilderness. Um, makes me, you know, when I imagine him in his office, I get even more depressed now because he really is by himself, you know, hoping that the script works but not knowing, you know, no one's out there waiting for it. He's just writing right. himself and he, here's hoping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for as much of a, a kind of a self-doubter as he was, it's ironic and, you know, that he, I think deep down he did have the confidence in himself that, you know, it, it, he wasn't going to try to take something out to market until he felt he'd perfected it. Right. And he really was his own best editor in that sense. He knew really precisely, you know, what his script was lacking and, and how it needed to be revised. He knew when it was ready. And again, he had the kind of uh, uh, the faith in himself that when he took it out, somebody would want it. Right, right. Um, now, were you able to see his notes at the time or his script? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of his per personal. I mean, all in you know, all of his papers are owned by the New York Public Library, and uh, you know, anybody they they're not like uh, physically on site at the library. You have to go in and request them, and it takes a few days, and you have to go to uh, it, it's it's what the do you mean? performing Where are they? arts. Well, there's the, the, there's like an offsite, probably like a warehouse in Jersey, okay. something like that. But you go to um, the the performing arts library, yeah, which Lincoln, Lincoln Center, Center right? Center yeah, campus. I love yes. that place. And, it, it's beautiful, and you may, you know that you have to go to a special uh, you know archive uh, room and to, to to handle them. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's it, I mean it's almost so obvious to think now. But this was an era, uh, you know, before computers, before word processors, so everything had to be you know either typed out or handwritten. And he was it, not surprisingly a very meticulous person. Saved everything. Uh, kind of lived in fear that he was going to be either plagiarized or sued. And in fact, you know, when he made Altered States, he was sued. So he kind of 
predicted that correctly. But so so he you know saved everything. And so when you go and request uh, you know for example his files on network, uh, everything is there. Every single iteration of the screenplay, all all the you know the research notes. Uh, I mean, part of the funny way that he wrote screenplays is, you know, to also write these kind of narrative uh, prose, almost like mini novels before he would write a script. And so it's almost like reading the book adaptation of Network before he wrote the Network screenplay. I love that. And he would just write that and rewrite that. And, you know, so you see characters change and evolve and become the figures that we see in the movie, you see, uh, you know, certainly speeches like the mad as hell speech kind of spring to life, almost, uh, you know, fully formed. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you it, it's every, everything is there. It's not like with, let's say, if somebody were writing on computer today and, you know, you save the latest version of the file and the last draft is gone, you don't get that kind of granular uh, right. You know, you wouldn't be able to go back and, and retrace the path in quite the same way. It was an extraordinary opportunity. Oh, I love it. I'm really jealous of that. Um, but but <laughs> so, <laughs> how how long did you spend on research? Was it was it a year? Or well, something? you know, it, yeah. I mean, it, before I actually started the writing, I probably spent maybe you know three to four months just with the archives, and, and at a time when my wife was working in Tokyo, so I had the whole. Uh, we didn't have our child yet. I had the whole house to myself and nothing to do on weekends, so I could just spend. Like every Saturday at the library with yeah. these papers, it was uh, yeah. It's the only time in my life I could have done it that way. Spending your weekends with Chayefsky—that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so you know, you, you keep talking about you know how much how much control he he exerted over his projects. Why do you think he never uh, directed to have complete control? Well, again, it has to do, I think, with you know uh, the the sort of aggregate of his experiences first in certainly in TV, where you know he felt like uh, you know even in the era of Marty and just before that, you know he had you know he you know he had no control over his own works. He would right. deliver something and then it gets you know rewritten and reworked to the specifications of many other people. That's how it goes. Uh, yeah, that that was uh, frustrating to him, and you know, as you know, after Marty became a hit, you know, even though he did do some film work in the you know late fifties, early sixties, he spent a long time working in uh, the legitimate theater immediately after that, and a lot on Broadway. And those some of those experiences, I think, for him were really devastating because you know, I mean, Broadway is just kind of ruthless and Darwinian in in that way that. Uh, you know, I mean, a show can, you know, you can spend months and months refining it. And if an audience doesn't like it, it closes in a week. Right. And he had experiences like that. He, uh, in 1964, he wrote uh, and directed uh, a play called The Passion of Joseph K. And that was about uh, Stalin as a young man and his kind of uh, early rise to power. And it starred Peter Falk. And that was a big flop. Uh, it only ran uh, about 11 days. That was, the, I'm wow. pretty sure the only thing he ever actually, uh, you know, directed yeah. or, you know, got name credit for directing. And I think I think that really wounded him. I think that, that he really took away from the experience that he was not a director. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, he kind of, 
you know, he would kind of go through these cycles of thinking, okay, uh, you can't get any control in TV, so you got to go into the movies. And then in movies, he felt like he didn't have control, so he had to go into theater. Right. And then theater, he didn't really have control, so he felt like he had to go back to TV. And TV, then he couldn't get anything sold, so they had to kind of go God. into the movies again. He never, you know, it was very, very sort of uh, peripatetic in that right. way. And I wonder, I mean, if his final, if he had lived longer, you know, his final movie, of course, Altered States, which he hated and he took his name off of. Um, But if he had been able to continue his career, maybe that would have been what spurred him on to start directing because he hated Ken Russell's version of his script so much. It's and and you know to me kind of ironic that he hated it so much because I think at the time Russell probably was one of the best equipped directors to really uh, you know realize the vision that that Chayefsky had. It needed to be really kind of far out and visual and there were very very few directors at at that time and probably many more now who are more steeped in the kind of you know special effects and visuals that it needed but russell uh probably like a genuinely qualified guy to do it but just wouldn't give chayefsky the ultimate control that he wanted i mean to the point and and this was something that he enjoyed on most of his movies certainly on network that he was on set every single day and watched every take of every scene and, you know, really had about as much control over things as Lumet did. And, you right. know, Lumet was probably one of the few directors that would, you know, even permit that. He knew that going in that that was right. the arrangement Chayefsky wanted. And Lumet certainly got to exert his n- enough of his own uh, voice and authority on the project. But m- very few directors, I think, would have accepted that compromise. Totally. It, it makes Chayefsky much more like a TV showrunner today. Um, you know, that's that's something that we, uh, you know, afford to our TV showrunners today, being on set and standing next to the director and sort of being in charge. But no writer was doing that in movies in the 70s. No, yeah. no. And, and, and certainly that, that's I mean, that's certainly not how, you, you know, certainly not today how filmmaking happens, even if you are, uh, you know, a, a, an Aaron Sorkin or, you know, I mean, somebody who's known principally as a screenwriter. I mean, you write your script uh, and then it really becomes the right. director's uh, project. Right. Completely. So I want to play a clip from. From, uh, from network. Um, this is, uh, you know, you and I talked about what clip to play. Um, <laughs> so this is, you know, I think you'll be happy. This is the, probably the second most famous monologue in the movie, but in my opinion, and, and maybe in yours too, I'll be curious, I think it's the more interesting and better written speech. Um, so Ned Beatty plays the powerful chairman of the giant company for which, you know, our hero news anchor Howard Beale works. Um, He's just found out that, uh, you know, Beale has been going on the air ranting uh, against the corporation and against, a, you know, a coming up deal that they, they have going. Um, and so he calls uh, Beale to his conference room to basically put the fear of God into him. And it's a giant conference room just to set the stage that would, you know, easily fit 50, 100 people. But it's just the two of them um, across this very long conference table. So let's play the clip and then we'll talk about it. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? Do you think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. (coughs) There is only one holistic system of systems. 
forms. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rings, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? <laughs> <laughs> I love that last, uh, just that that, that that total 180 in tone. Totally. No, I'm... Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's just an absolute, it's a beautifully written speech. There's so much in it. He has so much to say. But I got to say, just even hearing it again just now, it leaves me a little bit cold. It doesn't feel like it's coming from character. It feels so much more to me like he's, you know, writing a thesis. What about you? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, the language of it clearly is is very overblown. Nobody talks like that. Nobody, uh, whatever they think of themselves, is that uh, articulate or you know grandiose in the way that they speak. And so, uh, clearly, at this point in the movie, I mean, we've lost <laughs> any connection to reality or right. how uh, people genuinely behave. But th- I mean, that's part of the joy of it. I mean, th- th- this is it, the movie kind of completely, you know, flying off its axis and you know we're probably I don't know 20 to 30 minutes away from them actually assassinating Beale right. so it's kind of uh, you know we're, we've completely left the you know the realm of, of how you know people actually behave yeah completely uh, but so but, what do you know I mean, about what, what, yeah oh, please I was just going to ask what you know about the making of that scene I mean this was you know I think Ned Beatty was, was nominated for an Oscar and he, that's basically his only scene I mean you know we see him maybe a couple other times but I mean that is his moment Oh sure. I mean, I'll 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 lay a little trivia on you. I mean, right. first of all, you know, Ned Beatty was not the original choice by any stretch to play the Arthur Jensen character. That they had originally cast uh, a character actor named Roberts Blossom, who is this. Uh, he, he passed away uh, some time ago, but was this kind of. Uh, uh, you know, very like uh, you know, modest, unassuming man. If if, if people might know him for being uh, the old man from the movie Home Alone, uh, whom huh. Macaulay Culkin befriends, right. uh, and he had also played a small role at the start of the hospital. He's the patient that goes in at the beginning of the movie oh, and yeah. then basically dies from them completely misdiagnosing him. Right. Uh, and they he I did they not have the he, for, he did not have the gravitas to deliver the speech like that. That would have been a very very different no, performance. No, I, I think, you know, initially I think both Chayefsky and Lumet had imagined the character as more of a kind of, uh, a, you know, a little bit of a wheeler dealer, a kind of, a, you know, almost like a used car salesman type of guy. And, you know, they hired him and, and within, you know, uh, they, they, the, they did uh, they did actually rehearse the movie. They, you know, they, they worked for about a week or so, uh, you know, before the cameras were rolling and, almost, you know, did like a, a full run through of the film. And at that stage, both uh, Lumet and Chayefsky realized this is not the right guy. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they, you know, with a handshake, let him go from the film. But 
then the movie had to go into production and they, they didn't really have a, a, a plan B in mind. And I think it was on the recommendation most likely of uh, Robert Altman who, you know, recommended hmm. uh, Ned Beatty to him. And, and they basically had to cast him like, uh, you know, probably three or four days before – he filmed the scene, and and you know, Beatty told me this story of you know sitting down with with uh, you know Chayefsky and Lou Met and uh, Chayefsky's uh, producing partner Howard Gottfried, and basically you know did kind of like a read through audition for them, and then he told them, hey, listen, guys, uh, I love your movie, but I got this other offer, and if you don't give me the part today, I'm going to go do this other movie. And so, you know, he leaves the room, they huddle for a few minutes, he comes back in, they say, you know, you've got the part, it's all yours. And and Beatty was totally bluffing. He had no other hmm. uh, gig lined up. But it's another so example was... <laughs> of being willing to walk away, right? And get what you want if you're willing to walk away. Just like Chavsky. I think it's also... It's a very Arthur Jensen-like thing to do, uh-huh. to have that kind of supreme confidence about the universe. Not that they could have known that uh, at the time, but it really shows you how perfectly right he was for the character. And right. they just, I think the inherent grasp that he already had of who that person was. And, and he, you know, he does it with such a, a wonderful uh, theatrical flair and, and uh, you know, he allows himself to be over the top in a way that, he couldn't have known the rest of the movie was not to that point. Uh, you know, it, it just it, you know an actor just really trusting, I think, his own uh, impulses and and given given a long leash, uh, you know, by Lumet. And they also lucked out; they wanted to shoot that scene in the boardroom of the New York Stock Exchange. Hmm. And they initially had permission, and then the stock exchange people, uh, you know, got a copy of the script and read the dialogue, and they said, "There's no, there's no way we're allowing this scene to be shot here." Wow. So that that sequence is actually filmed in uh, a big meeting room at the uh, the New York Public Library here in Manhattan, on uh, you know, right on 40th Street, and it, it's hmm. you know, not it was it's not a, a place of business by any means, but it's so uh, perfectly suited. It just has the exact right mood and lighting and a kind of uh, an uh, an eeriness to it. You really feel as uh, you know as as Howard Beale says in that moment. I'm in Valhalla. I mean, that's what that room looks like. Right. Yeah. And, and Lumet shot it just beautifully. The way um, you know Jensen closes the shades when it begins and looms yeah. over him the whole time. You know, approaching him slowly. It really does feel primal. Um, man, I love all those behind the scenes details. You should write uh, ten more of these books about behind the scenes of other great movies. Is there any other movie besides Network you can imagine devoting a couple years to? I, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of, and and none that anybody would pay me to to write. <laughs> right. I mean, I love a movie like you know Phantom of the Paradise or the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I probably, uh, I, I mean, they're not. Uh, classics in any way the same in the mm. same regard but they're, they're i mean they're, they're just i find them fun uh, right. movies but yeah i mean who, who i can only think of about five people tops that would want to know about the makings of those films uh, you know to that degree i wonder are you sure you wouldn't have said that when you first told your wife you were going to write a movie about behind the scenes of network was she like oh, that's a great idea that'll be a bestseller no. <laughs> well, uh, you know, she's, she, you know, my wife is, is, uh, you know, pretty universally supportive of okay. me, so I don't think she worries about uh, sales in that way. But you know, I, I mean, I, I, I had, you know, I, I got to do a kind of uh, uh, a test version of the book by writing an article. 
uh, you know, a feature for the times that was drawn a little bit from, uh, you know, Chayefsky's papers and also talking to people like uh, Sorkin and Stephen Colbert, who's a huge fan of Network, and you know, just talking about its its enduring influence and a little bit about uh, some of the information that was in the papers about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Chayefsky's writing process. I mean, it was only about a 2,000-word feature, but right. we got such a huge response to that story that that really said to us, okay, there's, there's more to say. Right. That makes sense. Because, I mean, yeah, you know, there were obviously a lot of different approaches you could have taken to this book, you know, and, and I love it so much, but if you had made it about Sidney Lumet, for instance, and Sidney Lumet is one one of my two or three favorite directors of all time. I'll watch yeah. The Verdict, you know, over and over and over yeah. again. But if you had made it about him, I, it just, you know, I don't know if it would have worked as well. It's it's the fact that you really tied it to Chayefsky and his world vision that made it your book so great. Yeah, um, and it's just something I would not have known without, you know, already having had exposure to Chayefsky's papers. And you really, uh, you know, literally anything that he he wrote down, even if it was just like a note to his wife, Susan, about, you know, I'll be home late. And, you know, can you make sure that, uh, you know, you do the laundry while I'm out? I mean, anything that he puts a paper, it always had a touch of his (laughs) voice in it. I mean, you know, for uh, obviously, this was a book where I could not have any access to the man, but you really feel like you get to know him uh, you know, just through those compositions, and and okay. he's so uh, vivid in in all those documents. That's so great. Um, by the way, I looked up the review in the Times of your book. Um, how, why did Rob Lowe review your book in the New York Times? <laughs> <laughs> why did the actor I, Rob I mean, Lowe I, review your book? Just curious. I love I, Rob I, Lowe. I'm a big fan of Saint Elmo's yeah. Fire and Rob Lowe. Uh, but he gave me a very kind review, so I have no complaints. And, okay, and fair uh, enough. It was a, a wonderfully written uh, piece. It was. A, <laughs> I mean, I don't have even even though I work at the Times. Obviously, I don't have. Uh, you know, they don't they don't tell you in advance. You know, yeah. if your book is getting reviewed, who's reviewing it? They don't ask you for those kinds of suggestions. But I guess they just knew that he was uh, a huge personal fan of the film. I guess anybody that works. Uh, you know, you work with Aaron Sorkin for that long. Right. You know, either you come in uh, a Chayefsky fan or you leave a Chayefsky fan. Right. Uh, they they just knew that about him, and uh, you know, not to toot my own horn, but if you, I mean, if you read his review, you will see. I mean, he knows the film very well. I don't think he was just looking for a spec assignment for the book review. I no. think he really cares about the movie. No, he's actually he, he's a wealth of information about about TV and film. I actually um, met him a couple weeks ago. I went on set. My oh, buddy writes yeah. for Code Black, which is new show. Oh, yeah. So I told him I yeah. wanted to go on set and meet Rob. And, you know, Rob talks about um, he has a great understanding of, like, the history of pilots. Like he said, um, you know, the greatest pilot ever written is um, uh, The Wonder Years. And it's like, who oh. who has that at the top of his head? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I think he's, you can make an argument. Like, he's right about right. that. Um, but, uh, but anyway. Um, Don't judge a book by its cover. That's the lesson. <laughs> very fair, no matter how handsome. Um, so as we finish up, I want to play um, a clip from one of Chayefsky's three Oscar-winning speeches. Um, this is Chayefsky, you know, obviously talking to an audience of about a billion people about what a screenwriter does. So I just want to play that quickly and then talk about it before we let you go. Screenplay writing is a much misunderstood form of writing. In the old days, the the image of the screenwriter was that of the great novelist who had uh, gone derelict in the corrupt tropics of Hollywood. And uh, nowadays, I think they think of the screenwriter frequently as somebody who helps out the director with lines of dialogue. But in point of fact, uh, screenwriting is a very special, highly refined uh, discipline. It requires all the standard storytelling talents, and it also requires a visual eye as well, because the screenwriter 
frequently has to tell a story without words, which are, after all, the primary tools of the writer's craft. When it works, a good screenplay is a thing of beauty, a model of precision and clarity and imagery and concept and mobility, wit, passion. It is a, something to celebrate and something to honor, and so let's honor them. Oh, I've got to read the nominees. <laughs> I'm that eager to know, I must say. Every one of these fellows are friends of mine. The nominees for the Original Screenplay Awards are Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman for Annie Hall. I love that. I just wanted to keep going because I was so excited that he was giving it to uh, Annie Hall, which is such a great script. Um, <laughs> well, you know what's what's so funny, uh, you know, about the, I mean, the clip that you just played. So that's a year that he was uh, not an Oscar winner. Obviously, he'd won the previous year for Network. That was the year that he was presenting mm-hmm. uh, because he'd won the previous year. But uh, I'm sure you know this. That was the year that he got into the dust up with Vanessa Redgrave. Right. Uh, because, you know, she uh, she was a nominee as an actress, but she had also produced uh, a documentary about Yasser Arafat and the uh, PLO. Which obviously did not sit too well with uh, Chayefsky, who was a, a pretty passionate Zionist. And so, just before he gave the speech that you just played, that's when he made his kind of uh, little contrary remark about Vanessa Redgrave for politicizing her speech. Right. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason that he got flustered when he goes to open the envelope. Not just that he forgot to read the nominees, but I think he was still. Even as he's reading his remarks, he's still kind of caught up in the adrenaline of just having called her out, mm-hmm. and that really set the audience off. And uh, yeah. you know, that's that's the kind of man that he was. I mean, he was just uh, this really kind of pugnacious uh, guy, and really, really didn't care about you know uh, social graces so much. Totally, no, uh, absolutely. And and I just also just love the way he talks about what it means to be a screenwriter. He he clearly has so much love for the art form and so yeah. much respect for it. Um, it's just so good. He's hear. really he's really making a, a pitch or a case for the primacy of the screenwriter. He's really kind of saying, you know, don't right. don't forget right. about us. We are not just these kinds of ancillary guys. We're not we're not the second player on the film. We you know, in his uh, envisioning of it, we are the heart and the soul of the film, and you need us uh, above and beyond anybody else. That's clearly how he felt. That's totally right. Um, Dave, this was awesome. I really enjoyed talking oh, about Chayefsky. My pleasure. My yeah, pleasure. Thank, thank you, you for having me on. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. That was awesome. Uh, I told you, Dave is great. Read the book. Read his byline in the New York Times. Um I like him so much. And that was so fun to talk about Chayefsky for a while. And by the way, um, our producer Ryan just looked it up on YouTube and the Rod Steiger version of Marty is available in its entirety. So I am definitely going to be watching that on the train ride home. Um, thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints, as always, on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy, or email me at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you next week.